The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Nearshoring, foreshoring, and onshoring are terms that are becoming common in reference to moves within the United States to address a number of issues associated with global value chains. According to co-author Laura Alfaro of a paper that was prepared for the Jackson Hole Symposium in 2023, there is a looming great relocation on the horizon. Alfaro says the evidence is clear. The U.S. reliance on China peaked in 2017. The introduction of tariffs by President Trump and continued application of those tariffs by President Biden, as well as the ongoing power play between the two countries, has brought about changes to distribution channels. According to Alfaro, Vietnam and Mexico have and continue to rise in prominence as preferred trading partners with the U.S. And while Canada has slipped over the past 30 years, it still remains a strong trading partner. I invited Laura Alfaro of the Harvard Business School to join me for a conversation that matters about the shifting trade patterns and relationships that are underway. Professor Alfaro, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. You co-authored this uh, paper and presentation to Jackson Hole uh, Summit uh, last month. Um, when you started to prepare it, were you, were you surprised by what you started to see as evidence that suggested that there is some decoupling between the United States and China? So, um, again, thank you for the, the opportunity to, to share our, our findings. We were not fully surprised of all results because some, again, uh, there is evidence in other work uh, that has documented these patterns. And um, we hear them a lot when talking to uh, students, participants. I tend to teach a lot of executives. So there is a lot of discussion about these changes. Perhaps what was more interesting was the, and surprising was the, quant the quantities. Uh, how deep this uh, reallocation has been. One issue we do want to clarify, and is perhaps our opening comment in the, in the paper, is there is a lot of talk of deglobalization, and that is not what we're seeing. Uh, the U.S. has never seen the level of import it has seen. It is more this reallocation. As you mentioned, um, a lot is to Asia, Vietnam, uh, what we call high-income uh, Asian countries, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, lower-income Asian countries, uh, India. But it's a lot within NAFTA, and that is Mexico and Canada. And, and we do emphasize this result because both Canada and Mexico have already very high levels of trade with the U.S., which is not the case as uh, Vietnam. And so there was even more trade in uh, these two countries are friends, but, but they're also near. So, so a, a deepening, if you want, of the NAFTA relation in the U.S. So is this a shift by American companies that had been uh, located in China, where they had made their foreign direct investments, uh, built their factories out, and have now started to say, hmm, China is posing problems for us. We think that we need to diversify. Um, is, is that what's happening or is there just a straight move by importers in the United States to say, I want to find a different supplier in a different jurisdiction? 
So we document that is most, a lot of it is trade. Um, and in terms of FDI, is more like, I'm not going to go much more than I'm going to get out. And, and that I'm not going to go has been happening even before uh, the Trump tariffs. In trade also, it has happened before the Trump tariffs, but it's clear that the Trump tariffs, the 217 tariffs, intensified this trend. As I said, it was happening because China has developed, and development, as we all know, is to pay higher wages. And so firms, both in trade or FBI, have tried to look for other locations. So there is a pretrend. You do see they're trying to go to, a, again, lower-cost countries. But after the tariffs... And as you mentioned in your introduction, the fact that Biden didn't take get, get rid of the tariffs, but also had additional policies. Many firms that were in like, let me see what's going on, are just now in like, no, no, I know what's going on. This is here to stay. And so some actively have looked for additional trade part, uh, uh, partners, diversifying trade, and some actively have opened affiliates in some other countries. It, many have kept the relations with China, um, again, but it's my additional firm or my additional supplier, I'm, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And that is what we document, which again, to your first question, but was that surprising? Quantitatively, it was surprising. It is the products that have lost market share in China that we see them gaining market share in some other, in, in the countries that we have mentioned. Uh, what kinds of products are you uh, referring to? And so in, in the paper we document, we use a measure that is uh, upstreamness, uh, that is a summary statistic and measure created by my co-author. When a product is very downstream, it's a product that is very close to the final consumer. So think toys, clothing, even washers and dryers. They're usually bought by the final consumer. We see a lot of that reallocating from China to Vietnam. Why uh, low cost? Um, and also some of the network of suppliers are starting to go there. But we also see more upstream, uh, think petrochemicals, uh, the pieces of semiconductors. We see a lot of reallocation of, of those products. Semiconductors, we saw a 10% drop in the market share of China. And so those, and, and also parts of electronics, are going to Vietnam, but also a lot to Mexico. And so Mexico is very interesting how it's a very now deep relation with the US in many products. Um, again, a lot of these very upstream relative to downstream products that are going more to Vietnam. Uh, Canada is a little bit in between, uh, a lot of uh, upstream products, but, but the relation Canada-US has always been a little bit more upstream than, than downstream. I, again, related to cost. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So there's a myriad of reasons why it's, it's shifting. Is cost the number one uh, driving force or are there other geopolitical forces at work that uh, companies are saying we need to mitigate risk and so therefore we need to diversify our supply chains? As I said, there was a trend associated with costs, um, but 
our results suggest it is policy. So again, this is a, perhaps a more technical, but controlling for tariffs and some other policies, that seems to be one of the main variables explaining that shift to Vietnam, to Mexico, to, to these other countries. It, and the policies, the tariffs, behind them, there are different motivations, but, but a lot have been strategic. Uh, so, so it is a, a response to active policy by governments. Is the power play between the United States and China also an influencing factor? And I sort of bring that up a little bit uh, in relationship to what has happened in Canada. Uh, I'm not sure that you're aware of the fact that there were two business executives that were seized by the Chinese uh, government. We call it the case of the two Michaels. And it's put a real chill on uh, top executives for companies from Canada uh, and their willingness to travel to China. Is, has that had a spillover impact on other nations, and in particular the United States, having witnessed that? I, so at that micro level, um, my estimates cannot speak. I, I understand that's a very academic response. But I think the, what's behind the policy, it is events like that. And so uh, the charges were put in 217, the Biden administration didn't get rid of them. If anything, the policy has intensified. And behind that in more intense, if you want, concerns, are events like this. Um, in, but, but, but again, it's, it's more generally uh, geopolitics, strategic considerations, national defense. Uh, it, semiconductors is one of the main sectors being targeted, and, and there is all of these concerns. But, but again, I, I cannot deny these type of events are not behind the reason why the government is has created this policy that is here to stay. So one thing we say in our paper, doesn't matter who's going to win the U.S. election, these policies are not going to go away. And that certainty is what's driving firms also to change. It, these policies are here to stay because this is a government concern that is beyond the next election cycle. And why is this a concern beyond the next election cycle? It is because in strategic considerations, national defense, they take uh, the uh, intellectual property, but also human rights. If you go there, you don't know what will happen. Again, all of this bundle uh, goes behind this policy. I also have this very nice survey that I'm doing with my co-author David Chor and also Maggie Chen, that we have been surveying U.S. participants for the last five years, uh, trying to find ways to change uh, U.S. Um, people's uh, views on trade, because in the U.S. there's a very negative view on trade. 60% of the population has turned against trade. This didn't used to be the case 10 years ago. This didn't used to be the case with NAFTA. And what we found out that is a deep concern about the relation with China and the relation with China in respect to potential jobs. So it is a people's sentiment uh, fed with all of these uh, events that they find out from the news. But again, things that perhaps they have seen in their towns. And so politicians see this also in the public and on all, a combination of all of these means, again, these policies are here to stay. Firms 
went over that wait and see period, and now they're actively uh, mentioning, I'm gonna start this firm somewhere else, I'm gonna move this plant, I'm gonna find this different supply. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So you, uh, in your paper, uh, make a point of suggesting that this is not a complete decoupling from China because Chinese organizations or the Chinese government are also making foreign direct investments into Vietnam and Mexico and so on. And so it's, yes, uh, much of this trade uh, uh, is moving geographically, but ultimately the link may be back to China. Uh, is this something that uh, means that what, we're ex what we think we're witnessing uh, might be uh, a little different than it appears on the surface. So that direct linkages, US, China, they're clearly, as you said, since 2017, they peaked. In the paper, we compare a lot with the case of Japan. So Japan in the 60s and 70s, as the US started to have bilateral trade deficits, also started a policy of um, tariffs, concerns of national security, also related to semiconductors. Um, Japan at that time responded with voluntary restrictions on cars, but they also started an active policy of moving affiliates to the US. And the scope and the speed in which Japanese firms came to the US is dramatic. And, and we document that in the case and in, in the paper. And we mentioned that if one only looks at that direct relation via imports, US-Japan, is 5% of market share. If one goes and compares the sales of foreign affiliates and adds the sales via imports, Japan is actually one of the main partners, and it triples. We make the point that the US is not going to allow China to do that. Again, geopolitics in the US. But what China's doing is replicating via, via friends. So it is going to Vietnam. It is going to Mexico from a very low uh, base, but it's also intensifying trade with friends. And so we document that of the main top five trading partners of the US, every single one of them except Japan has seen an increase in the Chinese market share in the last five years. So directly, the U.S. is diminishing via direct links, FDI, and trade. China is not going to replicate by FDI in the U.S., but it is indirectly maintaining the relation via imports to other countries and FDI to other countries. So it is likely that any input that U.S. buys from another country has, this, has a similar share of Chinese ownership and it used to be five years ago. Is that the same? Probably not. You do perhaps are diminishing a little bit of risk by not having directly, but, but we, we do caution that it is not 100% independence, um, yeah. especially if France are increasing the relation with China. There are benefits to countries like Vietnam and Mexico in particular if there is this move towards, even with FDIs from China into those two countries, 
there's the creation of jobs, there's an increase in GDP and per capita GDP. So it, we're spreading around reliance and we're uh, spreading out risk across a greater number of supply chains. It, it, that, that's the way it appears to me. That is possible and it is the case that one sees a lot of uh, economic activity in the US, which by the way is not only coming from China, the US is also opening up shops in Mexico. The Europeans are opening up shops in, in Mexico, especially uh, everything related to cars and auto parts. Um, but one can argue that one can also generate jobs through direct trade. And so, so it becomes a question which one of the two modes of engagement creates more, more opportunities and, and more jobs. Um, but there is no doubt that Mexico uh, is having a lot of economic activity related to that. In, in fact, there is this concern that the exchange rate is appreciating a lot. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. You know, one of the benefits, of course, globalization, and it touches on a point that you made earlier, uh, is that there would be lower costs to uh, companies and therefore ultimately consumers. And so that lower cost uh, was one of the driving forces for companies to say, well, we're going to move to uh, supply chains that are outside of China. But if we take a look at what's going on right now based on uh, your presentation, um, what is the impact on inflation, because this has been a very big point uh, within the United States and, and Canada in trying to maintain uh, or keep a, a lid on inflation. Will these shifts have a positive or a more costly uh, impact on inflation? So in, in the short run, we document that it's going to have higher cost effects. Why? Firms were thinking about moving, but they were taking their time. They were looking at the cost benefits. All of, of all a sudden, they're, if you want, forced to do this change faster than they wanted. So if you want any deviation, forced deviation from what would have been the natural decision of a firm, is costly. And we document that. Inputs that are now being brought from Vietnam that used to be brought from China are 10% more expensive than they used to be. It's a little bit less in Mexico, uh, 3%. It's also 3% in uh, Singapore and Korea. So there is an increase in the cost. There is, it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's inflation because inflation is every period that see an increase in, in the prices, not necessarily just a one-off. But this is likely to impact the whole uh, value chain. And again, 10% is, is, is not a small number. Um, yeah. And it's not a small number for, to the country that we were moving to because it was supposed to be cheaper. So I, as a firm, would have moved to Vietnam if I can get lower costs. I am now moving and getting 10% higher than what I used to do in China. So this is going to be more costly. It's going to go the whole value chain. And since all of this takes time, we are going to see it as, as an increase in prices, which are going to feed into this view that inflation continues to be uh, a cost. But in general, if globalization was correlated with lower prices, in, 
these abrupt changes to reallocate are going to be associated with higher costs. Mm -hmm. the, the impact on the overall inflation for consumers in the U.S. is not 10 percent because the U.S. continues to be a relatively close economy. Um, so in the U.S., what continues to matter are domestic uh, prices. But firms are also setting shops in the U.S., and, and we document that, especially in semiconductors. And there is evidence that they cannot find enough workers. They cannot find enough specialized workers. There is evidence that the construction costs in the U.S. are higher. So it is likely to impact uh, consumer prices, for sure, producer prices, and continue to make, if you want, the Fed's job a little bit tougher and reduce the sensitivity of our traditional tools, interest rates, to uh, lower inflation. Because again, the companies are getting pushed because of subsidies and tariffs, and that makes them less respondent to the traditional tools. Mm. So uh, over the last 15 years, uh, from my perspective, when we looked at Asia Pacific, the heavy, heavy reliance was on this growing interdependence with China. Uh, as you indicated, uh, Japan shifted its strategy um, and, and, and things moved. Going forward, when we think about Asia Pacific, do we need to now expand our thinking even to the Indo-Pacific to say that these links are now spreading out? Not, not minus China, but uh, uh, trading partnerships plus China, but not just China-centric. So in the paper, we take a, a little bit of a longer perspective, um, perhaps not for me as much, because uh, I'm now older, but we do start in the 90s, to document this interesting fact that even when the U.S. had the dramatic shift from Japan to um, China, and to a certain extent from Canada to Mexico, what is very interesting about the U.S. is that the regional shares have remained incredibly constant. So it, it, the US for the last 30, 40 years has imported close to 20% from Europe, including UK. Um, sorry, Brexit, but, I, but I'm still putting them together. Uh, so 20% Europe, 30% NAFTA, 40% Asia. And so what has happened is a reallocation within countries in these groups. So in Europe, it was from Western Europe to Eastern Europe, in Nada from Canada to Mexico, and in Asia from Japan to China, and before uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong. And now what we see is from China to Vietnam, India. So as regions, the US has been extremely stable and so we make the point that in the U.S. it has been more regional value chains, more than global value chains, but indeed now it's spreading into more countries in Asia. What is a shame is that it, it has always been very little with Africa and remains very little with Africa. So perhaps that's the next, next frontier. All of which indicates that there is, there's always shifting sands here and that there is relocation underway. And it's very important to anybody uh, who uh, relies on what those global value chains are to pay attention to these uh, uh, changes that are underway right now or are underfoot. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to share your insights with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. 
Thank you for listening, and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audlin Brown, AD Developments, and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.